Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Alan Brown, author of Unexplained South. If you missed last week's episode, make sure to check it out. And if you have a moment, be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other listeners and history buffs find the show, and we sure are grateful. For now, let's jump back in. Welcome back to Crime Capsule, Alan. We are so glad to have you. Oh, thank you. This this is fun. So let's just dive right back in where we left off last week. We were looking at some of the different sections in your book, and one of the sections that you have is on mysterious people. And there's a case in there which stood out to me for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, it's from Hazelhurst, Mississippi, which is a city I know fairly well. And number two, you also have an eerie uh, sort of overlap with eagle-eared listeners of this show will remember an interview that we did with Lisa Livingston Martin about the tornado in Joplin, Missouri, and the strange things that happened after that major, major tornado in Joplin where you had sort of unusual butterfly people and presences leading uh, survivors out of the wreckage. And then the sort of the these figures became kind of iconic and real spooky stuff. You know, they kind of celebrated in murals now, even though they disappeared. You know, were they angels? Were they something else? Who knows? Anyway, the boy prophet of Hazelhurst, Mississippi, really kind of struck me as like a, I don't know, like a precursor almost to what we saw in that Joplin tornado. So take us to Hazelhurst in the 60s. It actually starts in 1966 in the little town of Hazelhurst, where there's a a large African-American community. The story goes, one day this this little boy, 10-year-old boy, showed up, and he had this dent in his head. He was able to take a Coke, Coke bottle and put it inside that depression in his head and walk around with it. He didn't have to carry his Coke bottles with him. He did, um, he did a little preaching. He did faith healing on the side. So unusual that some people mocked him, made fun of him, teased him. The police at one time arrested him for vagrancy. They tried, they put handcuffs on him. He, story goes that he got out of the handcuff. He was um, on top of this tall wooden bridge. He jumped off, but he didn't fall. He kind of, they said he moved his feet like he was almost pumping a bicycle and and he just landed softly on the ground, uh, which is really strange. And uh, he did say in the late 1960s, at the end of the decade, Something terrible is going to happen in Hazelhurst. It would change the little town forever. Turns out that on January 23rd, 1969, an F4 tornado hit uh, Hazelhurst. Most of the people were asleep, which added to the number of casualties. 32 people died. 241 were injured. People in Hazelhurst have never forgotten this. In fact, there's a a young man named uh, Steve Collins, who was a little boy when this happened. And he said uh, he he survived by hiding under under uh, several corpses. Well, he uh, he is planning to uh, make a, a do- film a documentary about this. I was at a conference several years ago where I did uh, where a, a lady, a middle aged lady, who was a, a little girl at this time, talked about her experiences there and talked about the little boy. 
he is he is part of their history. You know, that's what makes it so interesting. You, you have in your book so many cases from different time periods, and in, this is one in which the the case dwells securely within living memory. I mean, this is not reaching back into you know the eighteen the eighteen forties where all we have to go are some you know sort of. Uh, half scribbled down accounts and, you know, nothing to corroborate it. I mean, here you have folks who remember this child, right? It's fascinating. And they're keeping him alive, too, through these stories they keep they keep telling to the media and to their own relatives and neighbors. Yeah, well, maybe maybe we'll see more to come in, in, in you know, future years, but this was a really enigmatic uh, scenario. Let's let's swerve over to something slightly, no less enigmatic, but slightly more comical. Uh, <laughs> there's a case in your section on UFOs, which, you know, will we'll take or leave the whole, you know, alien invaders from out of space, but um, the, the mysteries from the skies, the UFOs and so forth, there's a, a an incident... <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, as I was reading it, I thought this really sets uh, the the standard for what I should hope will will characterize any future encounters with UFOs. It's called the Kelly Hopkins Kelly Hopkinsville Green Man case, and and I think my favorite part of this account, Alan, is not that you have some good old boys who, you know. Um, got picked up off the side of the road by some some you know individuals they'd never met before and, and never wanted to meet again that that that's fairly bog standard as they say i mean that's kind of par for the course my favorite part of this is undoubtedly the fact that these good old boys in rural kentucky they didn't just get picked up by these in you know visitors from outer space they got into a shootout with them I mean, yeah they weren't yeah. going down easy you know? <laughs> no. so, tell us what happened in uh, in hopkinsville kentucky because <laughs> you know there's there's bullet casings on the ground so far as i understand it <laughs> well this happened on august 21st 1955 and i think it's important to note that that UFO fever was 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 rampant at this time. It was movies were being made about flying saucers. Um, people were having sightings all over the place, so they were on people's minds at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a uh, a couple named uh, Billy Ray Taylor and his wife. They were staying at the home of some friends of theirs, uh, the um, uh, Elmer Sutton and. Uh, uh, and his wife, and they were uh, um, trying to go to sleep. And Billy Ray uh, decided that he would, uh, he was thirsty. He said that he, he would go get some water for them. Well, he went out to the well, and now he said he saw this large shining object land about a quarter of a mile away. Well, uh, no one really believed him. And then um, the dog started barking. And, uh, of course, people in this part of, of the country would, they, the dog's barking, that's an alarm, they pick up their guns. And uh, they saw, uh, they went outside and they saw this little creature walking for them. Now, they said he was between three and four feet tall. <clears throat> And, uh, and they said it had large eyes, a thin mouth, large ears, short legs, 
claw-like hands. Uh, so they fired their weapons, but uh, uh, they, they had no effect on the creature, and it ran into the woods. Well, the men ran back to the house, and uh, uh, they got inside, and they saw the little creature's face staring at them through a window. So they fired their guns again, <laughs> and then all nine members of the family started shooting through the windows. Yeah. And and they said that they were of the creatures on top of the roof and there were between 12 and 15 of them and one of the one of the people uh, I guess had stuck his hand outside the windows and one of these things grabbed his hand. Somehow they made their way outside the house and in the cars, drove to the police station in Hopkinsville. I mean, I'm, I was wondering, you know, however, did they have enough ammo? I mean, you know, like if you're going to be shooting these suckers <laughs> off, like you got to go get, you got to resupply somewhere, right? I mean, are the critters yeah. going to wait, wait till you're down to your last, you know, box of shells? Or I mean, like, well, what on earth? They had a lot of, they had a lot of bullets. Well, they made their way to the police station and the policeman thought, well, maybe there's something to this. So, uh, um, they, um. They followed them to the Sutton farmhouse. Uh, Twenty officers searched the property, but found uh, nothing except a lot of bullet holes <laughs> in walls and windows. That's all they found. And uh, but they they were the police didn't know what had scared these people, but they knew something had. Uh, I guess they knew the family well enough to know that they weren't given to to bouts of hysteria all the time and and. And so they, they did check it out. Well, they persuaded the U.S. The police department persuaded U.S. Air Force to investigate the incident. Or uh, policemen came and talked to the uh, talked to the Suttons and the family members, and walked the perimeter of the house, and they found nothing at all. Well, uh, the story was published in the local newspaper, uh, and the uh, newspaper article featured sketches of these beings that uh, uh, a crime artist had given, uh, had, had recorded. And uh, uh, J, uh, Dr. J. Allen Hanick, Heineck, uh, did his own investigation of it. And uh, he thought that the, the incident was genuine. Now, J. Allen Heineck was associated with Project Blue Book. He was a very big deal. And uh, uh, people tended, because of, of his, I guess because of his testimony, people did think that there was something to this story. Well, uh, since uh, uh, 2005, um, Hopkinsville uh, has celebrated this event with a Little Green Man Days Festival. Oh it's a two-day festival and features uh, vendors, writers, alien costumes, and that sort of thing. <clears throat> well... In uh, recent years, uh, one investigator has concluded uh, that what these people really saw was a flock of great horned owls. Oh, <laughs> okay. But they were not little green men. And if, and if you look at the description, all of those features do fit that of an owl. Now, those owls aren't three to four feet tall, but right. they do have, you know, those horns, those ears, I guess. They kind of look like ears, and they have claws. And so that's what they think they probably saw. 
Well, there's a detail here which is really worth considering, a very um, important detail, which is that when uh, Elmer and uh, Billy Ray, uh, you know, go and get this water from the well, you know, there may be a little bit of a metaphor at play there. You know, are they getting some fire wa- fire water from you know the the well the well of spirits in the backyard? This is the Prohibition era, you know, and just, what are they drinking? What are they seeing? <laughs> that thought didn't occur to me. I wonder. I wonder if that was that was like a metaphor for. Or going to the still and pulling up a jug or something, or some mason jars. I just could not <laughs> help but wonder. And then the other question I had for you was, please tell me, please tell me, Alan, please tell me the answer is yes, that at this particular festival that they have in Hopkins, but please tell me there's a reenactment. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'd go if there was. That oh. would be hilarious. 10 to 12 rednecks cooped up in a cabin shooting at whatever moved, you know, I mean, in the, in the yeah, dark of night, was, drunk off their butts. I mean, that's, I'd pay good money to see that. Yeah. Well, what I, this has been reenacted on television, though. I do recall seeing one of these aliens uh, among us shows on, I guess, Discovery Channel or History Channel. Uh, and they did reenact it, but they made it look scary and real. Uh, but when you when you talk to think about it, though, the whole scenario does does have a lot of humorous aspects to it. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying nothing happened. I'm just saying something happened. And you know, yeah. when there's uh, when when <laughs> I'll, I'll, I've 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 said my piece. Let's go to Stucky Bridge. Let's go to <laughs> Stucky Bridge. By the way, um, by the way, Benjamin, yeah. you're not the first. You're not the first one to suggest that alcohol may have played a part. May have played a slight role. At least a slight uh, role, yeah. Well, let's let's get a little closer to home for you. I mean, you said that you've been living in Meridian for some years now, and there is a very, very famous site uh, called the Stucky Bridge in uh, Queen City. And so tell us a little bit about what's going on there. This is an unusual – this is, again, a little bit more sourced in kind of the combination of legend and fact, but we do have – all sorts of interesting stories swirling around this this particular structure. Stucky's Bridge is an old iron bridge that spans the the Chunky River. The original the original was a a wooden structure built around 1851. It was replaced in the early 1900s with an iron bridge. Story goes that in the 1850s. The late 1850s, there was a member of the Dalton gang whose name was Stucky. We don't know his first name. So he left the gang and decided to to uh, live in Lauderdale County, Mississippi. He set up this inn along the Chunky River. Well, Chunky River was uh, a very heavily traveled at this time. Flatboats would make their way uh, down the river on their way to sell their goods in Meridian. And uh, so he set up this inn, and uh, according to the legend, while people would uh, sleep, he'd uh, sneak into their rooms, knock them in the head, kill them, take all their goods, and dispose and uh, buried their bodies 
along the river. He was smart enough to know if he threw them in the river, they'd eventually find the bodies, maybe trace them back to him. So he buried them. Let me just point out a little bit of context here for, for our listeners. Uh, you know, it's easy to think, oh, Meridian is a good-sized town now, and, um, you know, we, we sort of see it as it's been built up over the years. But in the middle 1800s, Mississippi had only been a state for about 20 or 30 years. And, you know, this was uh, very much still considered frontier-ish territory. And, um, you know, the, the treaties such as Dancing Rabbit Creek, you know, with the Native American populations, the Choctaw and the Chickasaw had only recently been signed. Um, this area was very poorly traveled in, in many ways and was poorly, uh, there were very bad roads, river was the way to go, not much rail, you know, it really was kind of the, the, the boonies and the whole uh, section of East Mississippi in that area was was just in very bad shape as far as infrastructure goes. So if things went... If, if you were an outlaw, if you were a rustler, you know, in that area, uh, you were probably getting away with a whole lot. And there wasn't a whole lot of law enforcement to come and and really uh, take you to task for it. So not not a not a thriving industrial urban area at, the, at all at the time It was very, very wild. And, and the law that was there oftentimes did not really follow the law. Uh, the sheriff, for example, he found he heard rumors that Stucky had been killing people at his at his end. So he uh, he formed a posse and they rode out and uh, arrested him. Then gave him a trial. They just took him out to the bridge. Now he he had been standing on that bridge waving his lantern to signal travelers to come to his end. So they ironically took him to that bridge and uh, threw a rope over one of the trusses and uh, and hanged him from the bridge. Now. This is one of those legends that doesn't hold up very well to close scrutiny because the uh, the bridge, the, the, the wooden bridge, was replaced by uh, an iron bridge in 1901. So this, it, was a diff- it was a wooden bridge that he was hanged from, not the current, the present iron bridge. But at any rate, uh, people say that at night you can see his, the light of his lantern on the bridge. Swinging on the bridge, they say that you can hear the sound of his body. Apparently, after they hanged him, they cut his body, uh, cut his body loose, and it fell in the water. So you can hear his body uh, splash and sink into the water. Uh, you can see little orbs of light uh, flooding around the graves of his victims. Um, and this is uh, the, uh, going out Stucky's Bridge is a rite of passage for uh, a lot of young people. Uh, in Lauderdale County. Now, they blocked it off. You can't drive on it, but you can walk on it. And I, uh, I actually went out there in a car with a couple of uh, radio personalities. This was over 20 years ago. And at that time, we were able to drive on the bridge. And we drove on it, and we waited. And uh, I guess... <laughs> Oh, we were pretty impatient. We wanted something to happen right then, and we didn't hear anything, see anything. Uh, it was cool being out there, though, a very, very out-of-the-way place. And uh, I guess this, this brings up the uh, the term uh, legend tripping. Uh, this, this usually applies to young people who have heard these legends about old abandoned houses or bri- old bridges, and they want to test their courage by going out there and seeing if they're real. And they still do that out of Stucky's Bridge. At their own risk. Very popular. Uh, yes. At their, at their own. At, there is a little bit of risk attached to it, and that's part of the allure. 
I wanted to save the very best for last. Everybody knows there's nothing so joyful, so much fun as a critter, a good critter. You know, we just love critters, right? And when it comes to folklore and to legends and mysteries and, you know, they're just, every state in the union has its own special mythological critter that, you know, uh, defines the Badlands or, you know, the Pine Barrens or wherever it is. And I just, I was so glad to see that you had a chapter, a section which was just chock full of some of the great <laughs> southern critters, you know, uh, yeah. to, to travel, uh, you know, in whose domain we, we reside. Now, uh, I want to just take a look at two of them because th- these might not be as well known to, uh, you know, everybody knows Mothman and, you know, that sort of thing. We can, we can leave those aside. But I want to look at two. Uh, the first was the Lizard Man of South Carolina, which is uh, a curious one because, <laughs> well, the detail that got me there, Alan, was the bite marks on the car bumper. But we'll get to that. Just go ahead and tell us what's going on with this Lizard Man of Skateboar Swamp. Most of the stories of the Lizard Man focus on one incident, and this was on June 29, 1988. And it was early in the morning. There's a 17-year-old boy. His name was Christopher Davis. He he was driving home late from work when he had a flat next to this swamp. And the swamp's name is Scape or Swamp. So he climbed out of his car, walked over his trunk to get his jack. And then he noticed this seven-foot green creature pound on the roof of his car um and he he said that it had scales it had red eyes and long black claws well i don't know if he had fixed his tire at that time or not what uh what the narratives say is that he basically jumped in the car and took off and went home as fast as he could and when he got home he discovered that there was a um uh, a hole in the roof of his car that the side mirror had been ripped off. And uh, uh, two days later, the, this uh, monster made a, another appearance. Uh, the, uh, uh, a car, that, uh, uh, the owner of a car reported that uh, his car had been vandalized during the night and the investigating officers found long scratches along the side of a car. Uh, it looked like they had taken some kind of tool, like a screwdriver or something, and and, and scratched the car, uh, and uh, it even uh, uh, removes the chrome from chrome strip from along the side of the car with the, apparently with its teeth, whatever it was. Yeah, they made plaster cast of the three three toed footprints, uh, but. Uh, by by fall, though the uh, uh, creature apparently was gone. Well, he left a tremendous impression on the little town of Bishopville, South Carolina, because uh, tourism to the town has skyrocketed. Uh, they have a uh, uh, a festival there every year, celebrating uh, their monster. 
And and I think I think the important word is they're a monster because there aren't well, there aren't any other lizard men in the <laughs> right. South. There are lots of big Bigfoot sightings, but they have the one, the only lizard man sighting there. And uh, yeah, this festival has been going on since 2018. Well, I, I love it because we are, I, I did not actually realize this until um, just just very recently, we are now almost to the day at the 35-year anniversary of this encounter of Christopher Davis's uh, you know, sort of meeting the lizard man and and or it it trying to eat him or you know just whatever the dynamic was there. Um, but you know, I just thought, well, hell, that's kind of cool. Makes you wonder if lizard men keep anniversaries and if we should be looking out for him <laughs> in the next couple weeks. Um, it makes makes me wonder: if are they going to commemorate it at the festival? I would think so. Exactly. One would hope. One would hope. But more more. More to the point is, and one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about this one, Alan, is because, you know, like like a couple of the others in the book, this is very recent. This is very, 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 you know, in historical terms, this happened yesterday, right? I mean, so, you know, compared to some of the others that are out there, like, I'm curious about the role that it occupies in living memory in the area. I'm also curious about the means of investigation that we had for this one, which, you know, d- differ from older cases. Well, the fact that it is so recent, I guess, places it in the category of, of an urban legend. Um, and, and urban legends often do deal with with monsters and that sort of thing. The difference is, though, a lot of urban legends, supposedly, supposedly there there is an account of this incident in a newspaper, but they never find them. This one, though, is heavily documented. So it's more than just an urban legend. Well, there's all sorts of mysteries in those southern woods, and I think we can uh, look forward you know, to hearing more as they arrive. Let's take a trip over to Arkansas real quick. Um, a couple more, cr- couple more critters to ask you about. And this one is interesting because uh, in, in Fouke, Arkansas, you, know, you have uh, another potentially violent encounter with a critter between you know, some locals and so forth. And there's a detail at the end, which I'll ask you about, uh, that makes me, that, that to my mind just adds a lot of plausibility to the locals' account. Okay, but tell us, tell us what happened in uh, Fook, Arkansas in 1971. This is a Bigfoot story. And uh, I first, I didn't know, I first encountered this story like everybody else in, in the country did in 1974, when the documentary uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek came out. Um, but I've, I've, I've always been fascinated with it. it uh, uh, in 1971, there was a, uh, a young man named uh, uh, Bobby Ray, Bobby Ford. And Bobby Ford apparently had been uh, tormented by this creature for, for several days. His, uh, um, his wife, told him that uh, she was asleep in the front room uh, when this hairy arm came through the window and uh, I guess grabbed her while she ran through the ran out of the room and uh, she was able to get to to catch a uh, a photographic memory of the appearance of this creature he uh, 
had long hair, red eyes, sharp claws. Uh, well, Ford told the police about it, and uh, uh, apparently not not much happened uh, until a few days later when Ford and his honey buddies returned home uh, late in the evening, and they saw this huge figure that his wife had described standing in back of the house. Well, they had their guns with them. So they did what comes naturally, which is they started shooting. <laughs> right. Well, they did. You, you so do what, what else you're going to do. What so else are you going to do in that shooting. case? <laughs> and uh, uh, they said that uh, it fell to the ground. And uh, uh, so Ford ran, ran through the house. He was concerned about his wife. So he ran through the house. And apparently the creature had made its way inside the house. And he was seven feet tall. He grabbed Bobby's shoulder. And uh, uh, Bobby said that it had red, had red eyes. It, it was panting. And uh, its chest was about three feet wide. But uh, uh, he somehow, the creature had grabbed, was still holding on to him when he finally got out of his grasp and crashed through the door. And... Uh, um, the creature ran out, ran away as well. Well, they called the sheriff. The sheriff found no trace of the monster's blood, uh, but they did find a strange set of tracks around the house and claw marks on the porch. Uh, and so uh, Bobby Ford began to tell his story everywhere. He talked to a reporter from the local newspaper, Texarkana Gazette, Texarkana Daily News, um, a uh, radio station interviewer came out to talk to him, and uh, at the, at this time, the, uh, the that the media arrived, the Ford family was leaving. They were packing. They had had enough, and uh, uh, but uh, uh, they did uh, help. They did help the. Um, newspaper reporter write up the story. And uh, uh, the Associated Press and the UPI, they picked it up, they picked up the story and it became nationally known. Uh, and as I said, the documentary soon uh, followed as well. You know what strikes me about this one? I mean, Alan, really, it is a, it is a, there are big sightings all over the place, you know, kind of dime a dozen in, in certain circles. But what, what really struck me about this one was that little detail of the fact that they had just bought the house and then as you write you said I think you, you say something to the effect of that they decided to leave even though they had owned the home for less than a week you know that tell that tells me either that they had managed to pull off, you know, one of the biggest hoaxes of the of the decade and they wanted to cover their tracks and get out or they were so spooked by something that had happened that they didn't understand that they were willing to trade in everything they had just invested in after a matter of days and get the hell out. And I can tell you as a homeowner, you know, like <laughs> when you just buy a house, the number one thing you do not want to do is leave it again. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. It's a, yeah. that's a really powerful motivator. And I, as, as far as the detail went, and it just made me wonder what on earth actually happened there if they were so compelled 
to reverse course like that. Yeah, you make a really good point there. And 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 I put a lot more credence in that story than I do the uh, the little green men in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Less whiskey, maybe, in Arkansas in this particular story <laughs> than in than in the Kentucky story. But that you know that remains to be seen too. So I don't know. Well, so the last critter, the last critter, we're going to leave the book here for a second because you mentioned that in in your hometown, you actually have a critter which is, uh, or I guess a monster more than a critter. I mean, what what's going on back home in your neck of the woods? The late 1600s uh, when uh, uh, Joliet and Father Marquette uh, made their trip down the Mississippi River and uh, they stopped off at a, an area that is now the home of Alton, Illinois, and they noticed on the the, the uh, limestone cliffs, they noticed a a big painting of a huge creature. It had the horn, the antlers of a deer, uh, the face of a a, a lizard. It had the tail of a scaly tail and the wings of an eagle and the claws of an eagle. That's a weird mix. That's a a really weird weird mix. mix. Yeah. And uh, they talked to the Indians about this and they told the legends of this, this creature that had been um, uh, killing their people and uh, snatching them out of their beds and, and uh, flying up into the into the cliffs and eating them, and and this one young brave stood on top of the cliff and fired his arrow at the at the monster and fell into the Mississippi River and died. Well, uh, the uh, uh, archaeologists have taken this, anthropologists have taken this very seriously and uh, have looked at it, its elements, and they they have. They have noticed a, a resemblance of the creature, which is called the piasaw bird. This one, by the way, they've noticed it's uh, it, it has an uncanny resemblance to uh, dragons, which has led them to speculate that possibly, possibly uh, some Asian people did make their way down the Mississippi River at one time. Interesting. Um, that it's it. This is one of those stories that identifies that's part of of our identity uh, i interviewed just um, a month ago i interviewed a young man from my hometown for a job at my school and i said oh you're from alton alton illinois so you know about the pie bird and he said oh yeah sure and immediately i found a bond with this guy i didn't know and, and i think that's why these legends last the way they do they help people they give people a sense of identity. Especially if you got into a shootout with a critter, you know. So. <laughs> and, and, and some people celebrate their identity with, with festivals and things. I think that's wonderful. Well, there are so many cases in your book. I mean, it's hard to pick one out. It's hard to um, isolate, you know, just a handful here. But I absolutely encourage our listeners to go and check it out and pick up a copy. You know, what I, what I loved about it most, I think, Alan, was that 
a volume as expansive as this actually serves as a pretty darn good guidebook to the South. You know, no matter what state you're, you're traveling through or passing through or going to visit family in or whatever, you know, you can kind of open up this book and say, hey, maybe I do want to go check out old Stucky Bridge, you know, while I'm in the area. <laughs> <laughs> you know, carefully, we encourage our listeners to do that carefully. Um, but, you know, you've given us a, a wide range of places and spaces and mo- best of all critters to choose from, you know, as we travel these country roads. So we sure do appreciate this. It is a, a, a lot of fun to read. Well, I, I really enjoyed talking to people who, who have a healthy appreciation for legends, who, who don't just dismiss them as, as being a lot of bunk. I have some friends in the history department who, did, who don't take them very seriously at all. And I think that's a shame because they're, they're, they're part of who we are. Very much so. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this just before we before we wrap up here. If folks want to uh, learn more about your books, your many, many books, or uh, other work that you've been doing, what is the best place for people to, to kind of find you? Well, uh, I have a website, theghostdoctor.com. Uh, all of my books are available on Amazon. You can also find them at uh, Barnes & Noble, at uh, Books A Million. You can also find them at CVS Pharmacy in Walgreens. The History Press does a, a really good job promoting their books. And so while you're standing around <laughs> waiting for your prescription to be filled, you can, you can, you can, get, you can get the willies scared out yeah, of you is what you yeah, can do yeah. while you're waiting for your prescription. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, this has been a total joy. Thank you so much for taking us on this tour these last few weeks. And I think for all of us out here in, in podcast land, you know, I, I for one am definitely going to keep my eyes peeled and my antennae tuned <laughs> for any strange goings on. And if I happen to come across any, I know exactly who to ask for the real skinny on what's going on. So thank you so much for joining us, Alan. This has been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Alan Brown, author of Unexplained South, a brand new title just published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we speak to author Craig Gaines. I won't spoil it here, but suffice to say, there's gold in them thar hills. See you next week. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host. Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth. Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.